Thank you very much to Guff and to Oxford uh, Latin American Center for inviting me. I actually did my DPhil here, so it's always a pleasure to be back. It has changed dramatically, <laughs> um, at least in terms of infrastructure. But um, anyway, so the one thing I guess I'm not thankful for is being the first person after lunch when everybody's dying for a nap. <laughs> So, first of all, I will eventually get to the middle classes, but I'm going to talk a little bit about happiness first in the hopes that that maybe wakes some people up. Um, so this is a result of some work I've been doing with some students that really didn't start with the middle class. It started, we were looking at the, the characteristics of the protests around the world through worldwide data we have about sort of who's protesting. And not that I haven't, I've done work in the past on the middle class, middle group, and, and, but we just were having, you know, looking around in addition to what we'd read in the newspapers, the anecdotal stuff we'd read. And indeed, it's very clear that in countries from Chile to Brazil to Thailand and Turkey, um, that the protesters were not poor people out on the streets with nothing to lose, the sort of classic, but they really were, they were not only middle income, roughly middle income for their countries, but they were middle-aged, they weren't young, they weren't particularly young, and they were quite highly educated. So we started poking around in this, and it fit in with some other work that I've been doing for many years, trying to understand the determinants of well-being and happiness, and also the other way around, sort of what does frustration or lead to, and what does happiness lead to. And it turned out these protesters were the classic progress paradox story, and I'm going to show you a number of things, I think, that will um, sort of from the worldwide perspective and then look more specifically at Latin America. So first of all, if I can make this click. It's a PowerPoint. Okay. Oh, that way. Okay. It's like England driving on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> okay. I'll try. Okay, um, so anyway, we, you know, what began as a very nascent sort of few crazy economists looking at surveys of happiness and talking to psychologists has now become a whole new approach in the social sciences to measuring well-being. Um, there's even a whole, it's, you, we used to be laughed at and all of a sudden you can't open the American Economics Review without a, a title um, article on happiness. Um, there's a whole... Society of International Quality of Life Studies. The, and, and equally important, uh, many governments around the world have started to use these metrics of well-being in their statistics. The British government has uh, well-being metrics in their ONS surveys. have been a part of that. Even the U.S., we just had a National Academies panel that I was on where we were tasked with recommending what metrics should go into our statistics. The OECD has guidelines for statistics office, offices around the world, with guidelines in terms of how to use well-being metrics, how to complement income-based metrics, and how to think about them in the policy dimension. And indeed, Chile has already included um, some well-being metrics in its statistics. The Brazilians, I think, are quite interested, and on and on. But in any event, the metrics that we're using have gone from being sort of far out there and seemingly um, crazy to really being a part of the discussion about how you measure economic progress and also perhaps understanding some policy prog uh, paradox progresses. Um, we can answer questions as diverse as the effects of commuting time on well-being, why cigarette taxes make smokers happier, 
Um, they don't in a neoclassic economics framework. They do if you think about them as a smoking cigarettes, as um, maybe a, an addiction or self-control problem. Why the unemployed are less unhappy with higher unemployment rates. Believe it or not, that's true. I'm happy to talk about that in the questions. And why people adapt to things like crime and corruption when there's a lot of it around them. So basically, the, the method is particularly well-suited for questions that reveal preferences don't answer very well. And I focus on two in my research. Um, one is situations where individuals don't have the agency to make choices. And I think this is relevant to a lot of the themes that have been on the table today. For example, when there are protests. You, you know, standard analysis focuses on revealed preferences within a fixed budget constraint. But if you are frustrated about the state of public education in your country, you know, really, how, how do you reveal your preference? I mean, you, you can vote, but that's, that's pretty far removed from getting to where you want. Um, if you're made unhappy by inequality or corruption or bad governance, again, it's very difficult to reveal your preference. But we can get at the welfare effects of those institutional uh, weaknesses through these metrics. Then there are also um, situations where consumption decisions aren't the result of optimal choices at all, but they are the result of addiction or self-control problems. We find the obese, for example, are less happy than the non-obese. Um, or uh, when consumption decisions are um, sort of driven by things like keeping up with the Joneses. Again, if you think about the middle class or about the middle group, whatever you want to call it, all of a sudden you know, you've, sort of, you've gotten out of poverty. But along with that, you become much more aware of how other people live. And your children, I mean, one of the things I've heard repeatedly anecdotally, but I, I was very struck by many as faces of the middle class and some of the other stuff I've read anecdotally, but often it's the children of people who've reached middle class whose aspirations are driven by a lot of information about what everybody else in their society has. So again, these are the kinds of things that we can get a handle on with these metrics that standard income measures don't tell us very much about. So we measure well-being in two dimensions, hedonic well-being or daily experience. And that includes not just how, if it, you, were you happy yesterday or did you smile yesterday, were, you know, were you in a good mood, but also were you stressed. And we often find that people for whom life is a daily struggle, like the poor, experience high levels of stress that then make it very difficult for them to plan for the future. They have a very short time horizon because daily living is that difficult. And then we also measure satisfaction with life as a whole. Um, and the, um, the hedonic metrics are very good for sort of getting a sense of how people are going through their daily lives. The life as a whole, or the evaluative metrics, are much better for capturing people's differential abilities to make choices to lead the kinds of lives they want to lead. And as I listened to the many very good presentations this morning about what it constitutes to be middle class, maybe coming from the perspective of these metrics, one additional point I would make that I think fits with you know, people's ability to save, their ability to not be so vulnerable to shocks, is their ability to choose the kind of lives they want to lead. To have enough means that they're not just struggling every day, but that they can think about the future or their children's future and plan for those futures, invest in those futures. That's certainly a part of the American dream as it's defined. I think that's very much a part of what people want when they think about achieving a middle class life. It's some stability, some ability to plan for the future. Um, Okay, so just a couple of things that we know about life satisfaction in general. Um, I think this will also fit a little bit with, you know, where are Latin Americans on post-materialism and other things, and just an important background, a couple of important background notes. So this is, um, there's a lot of debate in economics about something called the Easterland Paradox that started 
all of this research, and it's basically saying as countries grow wealthier over time, average levels of happiness don't get higher. And even in a cross-section, you don't have a completely linear relationship between happiness or average happiness and average levels of per capita income. I won't get into the debate. Um, this is, I'll just tell you from this chart, this is adjusted GDP per capita, and that's percent of respondents above neutral on a life satisfaction question around the world. You could conclude from this chart that there is or isn't an Easterlin paradox. It depends how you, what you want to conclude and fight about. The wealthier countries are on average happier than the poorer countries. What's more interesting is that there's no real uh, linear pattern among either the wealthy countries, and there's much less, there's no pattern at all among the, the, the slightly poorer countries. And that's because when you do these averages, you're picking up unobservable differences across countries, unobservable differences that matter a lot to well-being, freedom, quality of life, health care, public goods. Guess where all the Latin American countries are? Much higher, are much higher than their income levels would predict. Countries like Pakistan, Tanzania, and Belarus are way down, exactly where they should be, right? So some of this is just real stuff. The other thing that gets mixed into these comparisons, and I, when I first started this, I did the first study of happiness in Latin America in 2002, and it was all over the front pages of newspapers in Latin America. Chilenos más felices que los peruanos. I'm from Peru, right? <laughs> you know, that was just like front page all over Chile. <laughs> Colombia, la, el dinero had this big whole, uh, whole issue article, Colombianos no somos los menos felices del país, del continente. <laughs> so it was, a, you know, anyway, there, I mean, so there's a lot of national rivalry gets into this. The problem is these country averages, as much as people want to see where their country is, are full of all these unobserved differences, and also one thing we're not controlling for is cultural differences in the way people answer surveys. So... Um, for example, uh, France, you can see, is way down, and people don't bubble around saying, have a nice day in Parisian coffee shops, versus I had a British friend who got so tired of being told to have a nice day in the U.S., she started saying, thank you, I have other plans. <laughs> so, so there are indeed just cultural differences. And again, if you think about Latin America, it's basically, it's a pretty positive place to be, and all the countries are up high. If you think about Eastern Europe, it's a pretty tough place to be, and all their countries are below where incomes will predict. So while that may be interesting, and people love these country comparisons, where we really are robust is when we can compare across individuals, hundreds of thousands of individuals across countries and over time, and control for all kinds of things in an econometric equation. And what we find is incredibly consistent patterns in what determines happiness or well-being around the world. And what that lets us do is then compare the effects of things that vary, because we can control for everything we know about, and then we can look at things like different kinds of public goods or education systems or whatever it might be. So here, this will wake you up. If you're falling asleep, look at this chart, because you can put yourself on it. This is one of the most consistent findings. Uh, we find it everywhere in the world. I just did the first well-being study in Mongolia. It conforms. So controlling for health, age-adjusted health, right? We're not expecting 75-year-olds to be as healthy as 34-year-olds, but controlling for age-adjusted health, being in a stable partnership, there is this very consistent U-shaped curve between age, that's age on the um, horizontal axis, this is years, I mean, sorry, happiness on the horizontal axis and years of age on the, um, years of age on horizontal happiness on vertical. But what is remarkable is how consistent this is across people everywhere. Uh, my friend Andy Oswald, who's uh, actually here, he's at Warwick, right down the road, 
He's even found that this holds in apes. He did a study of cheerfulness in apes, so there is something <laughs> biological going on. He and D Danny Blanchflower also did a study of antidepressant usage in the UK and the US and found that the, you get a U, right? Exactly the same point. So there is something about these middle age years, right? We all know double burdens, often teenagers, older parents. I think there's an aspirations aligning with reality effect in the middle age years. Think about this in reference to the middle class. And if you think about whatever concept you have in the middle class, middle group, they're working age people. They're, you're not thinking about 20-year-olds and you're usually not thinking about retired people. It's, it's people that are trying to make it, right? So they fit right in that U. Um, what, what, what else happens? As people get older, they actually get happier. Um, there are many reasons for that. Um, there, for example, young people have a bad experience and their standard deviation of bad experiences is very high. Think about it. You know, if you're a teenager, something bad happens, it's the end of the world. I have three teenagers, right? It's, it's always the end of the world. And by the time you're in your, you know, late 40s and 50s, a bad experience, had lots of them, you know, just you, you get used to it. Um, and then what you get, you get a selection bias because uh, happier people live longer, the less happy people die off. And lastly, this slide is very appropriately from Latin America data. There could be, our oldest respondent is 99, and there could be a happy to be alive or a... Um, senility effect, but I will leave that to you. All right, now that I've woken you up a bit, we're going to go to the middle class. Oh, wait, no, no, no. The, the, I've got some other things to keep you awake. Okay, the other thing that is, besides the consistent patterns, we know that income does matter. Um, you know, within countries, in poor people are less happy than rich people, but not, it's not a linear effect. Health is incredibly important to well-being. Um, stable employment is huge. Unemployed people are very, very unhappy. Um, there, you know, there are a couple of other things that are quite intuitive, but the, the, the standard things are consistent across people everywhere. The other thing that we find, though, is that people adapt. People are tremendously adaptable. It's a psychological defense mechanism. So people can adapt to things, particularly unpleasant certainty, right? So if you are used to lots of crime and corruption, and for many of us, and I grew up in Peru, but you, if you're used to just sort of lots of, you know, you don't, put your briefcase on the seat, you put it in the, in the, you know, in the trunk so nobody will break your car window to get your briefcase, you know, things like that. You just adapt to it. It really doesn't bother you. Versus if you don't live in a culture that's used to that, it would, it would seem like the end of the world. But human beings are incredibly remar uh, remarkably adaptable, and they can adapt to all these things and retain their individual levels of well-being. But they're much better able to adapt to unpleasant certainty, something you know about, you can deal with, than to, certain, to uncertainty, even uncertainty that's associated with progress. So I'll get to that. But first of all, here's a great picture of adapting to uncertainty and certainty. This is uh, data from the Gallup World Poll, daily data, 1,000 Americans a day. It's a remarkable data set. That's the uh, January 2008 to January 2010. This is a financial crisis, okay? The blue line's the Dow Jones. The red line are mean or average happiness, life satisfaction levels in the United States. As the markets start to drop, the Lehman collapse, everything, you see average happiness falls tremendously. It fell by 11% in six months. If you think about the fact that national average happiness in the United States did not change at all over three decades of rapid growth until 2001, this is a remarkable drop. These, these things don't move that much. So what happens, you get a spike, 
at Obama's inauguration, a spike on Valentine's Day, but otherwise, you know, a downward trend. <laughs> then the bottom stops falling out of the markets, and they sputter up, and average well-being levels go up even higher than they were before, even though the same people report their economic situation to be worse. So the point is, you can deal with a certain loss, right? Much better than uncertainty. So the counter to that, I need to move along here, is what we call the paradox of unhappy growth. Again, think about the middle class in this context. What we find controlling for levels of GDP, which are uh, associated with higher levels of life satisfaction, standard of living, the chart you saw showed that, ra very rapid rates of economic growth are typically associated with lower levels of well-being. And this is not driven by Mali getting out of poverty. This is driven by Brazil, Korea, China. The Chinese are petrified about unhappiness right now. They've had growth and po poverty reduction going like this and life satisfaction going like this, right? So growth does all kinds of things. It increases inequality, it raises aspirations, it increases uncertainty. Over the long run, it produces good things. But the process, right, the progress process isn't always a happy one. In fact, it's often filled with all kinds of frustration. So. Here's our story about where the middle group fits into all this. Um, we find that the process of achieving change and agency and making it from poverty to the middle class is actually full of frustration and unhappiness. And we did these uh, profiles of protesters around the world, and then we also looked at sort of this middle group and their trust in institutions in Latin America. Um, so one of the things we've been finding and working on is also looking at the reverse direction of causality. Maybe it takes frustration and unhappiness to drive progress. For example, people who intend to migrate from Latin America are typically wealthier and more educated than the average, but less satisfied with their lives and more critical of their economic situation. So some of what we, can, we find is frustration among the middle class may actually be a result of the difficulty of getting out of poverty and entering middle class. Um, okay, very quickly, w this is just an example. We did a study of access to information technology around the world and well-being, and what we found is that it had positive effects. So if you have, um, and forget about all the numbers on here, if you, if, if you um, had access to cell phone, the internet, it had a positive effect on your life evaluation. <coughs> But particularly for people who this was new, right, in Africa and in parts of Latin America where this was new, you actually got a, oops, what did I do? That was not what I needed to do. Okay, oh, good. Okay, you actually got increases in stress and anger for groups for whom it was new, particularly groups for whom it was associated with access to e-banking, which is a, a good thing, right, from a life evaluation point of view, but it makes life more complicated. It's a classic progress paradox. All of a sudden, you can access the internet, you can make phone calls, you respond to job advertisements in a way you couldn't before. You can even make financial transfers on your cell phone. That increases your life evaluation, but it also increases stress and anger. Life gets a lot more complicated. You're a lot more aware of how other people live. Um, so another progress paradox. Okay, so what we did for this, you know, there are lots of definitions about um, who's middle class. Guillermo did a nice presentation. Luis Felipe, all, um, all kinds of really nice ways to think about this. We just, we, we said, let's pick a middle group that has working middle class attributes, high school education or beyond, and that doesn't fit with the Brazilian data, but um, in any event, that's sort of what, the way we thought about it. 
working age years, 25 to 45 years, and second to fourth quintile. And we looked around the world. It's the fastest growing demographic cohort, you know, involved in all kinds of um, different, you know, it, it's, it's a key group when you're thinking about sustainable economic growth and democracy, at least in the literature. Um, we also found that this group was much more vulnerable in many ways. For example, this group around the world, so roughly middle age, above high school education and beyond, and second to fourth quintile, around the world experienced the biggest well-being drops during the financial crisis, much more than the poor. So why is this? Because if you think about it, this group has actually trained, you know, they've, they've got enough education, they're, they're fairly job-specific, they've increased their exposure to financial markets, they typically have bank accounts, they may even have some sort of investments. Um, they've got financial commitments, they may even have mortgages. Um, and when you get a financial crisis, they have a lot more to lose than the poor, a lot more sort of fixed investments. It's not saying, I'm not trying to underestimate the effects of a financial crisis on the poor. I'm just saying in terms of the disproportionate effect. And we found that this group experienced much larger well-being drops than the average during the financial crisis. Just a couple of very quick, um, okay, a couple of quick slides. Uh, so here we find, for example, if you look at Brazil, if um, this is stress in the past year, have you experienced stress in the past year? So income quintile two from 2009 to 2012, a big increase in experiencing stress versus income quintile five, you know, also an increase but much lower. Um, this is the proportion of respondents who perceive that hard work can get them ahead. If you see, you can see skepticism among the educated, right? It's the educated people in Brazil who are less likely to respond that hard work can get you ahead. So there's some sort of, you know, something going on with people who have made some gains. Um, this is experienced stress yesterday. This is actually a story of the middle class hollowing out in the U.S. Um, stress in Latin America is much lower than in the U.S., so that's a good thing. But also the difference between the poor and the rich on stress in Latin America is much lower than the difference in stress between the poor and the rich in the U.S. Because what we're finding in the U.S. is the difference, the gap between rich and poor on many fronts is, is actually greater. Um, it really is. A and then this is another, I think, almost crazy difference. This is this belief that hard work can get you ahead. Again, that's part of the American dream, being middle class, all these things. The difference between the rich and poor in Latin America is actually pretty minimal on and the answers to that question versus the rich in the U.S. score much higher than everybody in Latin America. The poor in the U.S. score much lower than the average on believing hard work can get you ahead in the U.S. So if you're worried about the middle class in Latin America, maybe worry about the U.S. a little bit too. <laughs> um, okay, very quickly. Uh, then we looked at this middle group in Latin America, and I just have two more slides, so don't worry, and about their, their sort of attitudes about institutions, hard work. Same definition for the middle group. So their age, middle age, higher levels of education. And this is based on an asset index right in the middle of the wealth distribution. Kind of rough, but it's what we had in the in Latino barometer data in this instance. Their average levels of happiness, the middle group, actually not no, no different. In fact, almost better than both the poor and the rich averaged out. So not particularly unhappy, but what? Happier at the end. So here are some interesting points. Here's this question. If a poor person works hard, they can become rich. Uh, the middle group, on average, is much more skeptical than either the poor or the rich. Um, here's 
very relevant to the discussion today about public versus private institution choices, um, education choices. They're much less satisfied with the education that they have access to than either the poor or the rich, and they're much less satisfied with the health care. So some of this frustration with public institutions, as your aspirations go up, you've made it, and you expect public institutions to work. They don't work. That's a source of frustration. And lastly, um, in our, with our middle group, they actually were much more skeptical of markets and private enterprise. Um, they were much um, less satisfied with the distribution of income in their country. Again, I think as, you know, this middle group is much more aware of how other people live than the very poor. Um, I won't talk about politics because it's not all that different. Lastly, here's just to go back so that we don't sort of worry too much about today. What got me all into all this work on happiness and life satisfaction were some findings on what we called at that point happy peasants and frustrated achievers in Peru, and I found them all over the world, in 1999. Um, so this is a very old chart. But we found that of the people that had the most mobility, right, that's, these are this mobility versus perceptions of how you're doing and life satisfaction, we found that over half the people that had the most mobility said their economic situation was negative or very negative compared to the past. And these poor people who had no income change said their situation was fine. That's what made me start to think about all this, got into all these progress paradoxes. And so as we think about this middle group, it's not just in Latin America but around the world, but particularly in Latin America where the progress, at least as I think we've seen a lot today, has been astounding in terms of a growth of a group that is roughly middle class by any definition, but also brings with it new aspirations, new expectations, and you know, finding some frustration probably shouldn't be too much of a surprise. So.